What's up, everybody? Welcome back to The Queue. It is season four, episode four, and this week's episode is about trauma. I do want to insert a content warning here that this episode may discuss some things that may be triggering for some people, and if that is you, then please feel free to take breaks during the episode, and of course, and always utilize any coping skills before, during, and after listening to the episode as well if you need those. I will be talking about trauma in a very general sense, but if you are a person who experiences vicarious trauma, which is trauma through other people's experiences, then you may want to be mindful of that before listening to the episode. Hello everybody. So, as was mentioned, this week's episode is about trauma, and like I said before, uh, for the content warning, if you need to take breaks during this episode, please do so if you need to utilize coping skills during this episode, or before you listen to this episode, or after you listen to this episode, please do so. Um, So I'm going to kind of just talk about some of the general things about trauma um, before we kind of dive in because I have a lot I want to get through in this episode and and all of this kind of pre-game stuff uh, will kind of give you guys the chance to get yourself set up, um, get any coping devices or mechanisms or whatever you need prepared so that you have them uh, once I kind of get to the nitty-gritty of everything. I do want to say that trauma is very uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, I specialized in trauma uh, in my grad school studies, uh, specifically domestic violence, Um, but I also obtained a clinical trauma certification as well following my graduate education. So trauma is one of those things where, uh, for me, well, maybe not for me, but it's something I say a lot, that trauma is everywhere. Um, and it's true. Um, and I, and I say that knowing full and well that not everything bad that happens is trauma or is traumatic. Um, but... Almost any and everything can be traumatic to a particular degree. Um, And again, remembering that the base definition of what qualifies something as a disorder is the level of debilitating uh, restriction it places on your life. Which, again, is not to say that if it's not debilitating, that doesn't mean that it's not impactful for you. It doesn't mean that 
it's not relevant. It just means that it may not be under the category of clinically diagnosable. And again, remember, there are diagnoses that do not fit the typical presentation of certain disorders. So just because your disorder doesn't look like typical trauma doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be diagnosed with a trauma-related disorder. Um, but again, keeping in this kind of general piece here, uh, trauma is also one of those things where in addition to it being the same as other disorders as far as like no two people diagnosed with a trauma-related disorder are the same, the way that the trauma itself affects each person individually. So not only, you know, are the diagnoses kind of different um, for each person, the ways in which they may manifest uh, are different for each person as well. For example, the diagnoses for PTSD, like clinical PTSD, um, came about originally because of work with veterans. I believe it was Vietnam War veterans. Uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I believe it was Vietnam War veterans. And it wasn't called PTSD back then, it was called shell shock. And so, which made sense. I mean, so that became the running diagnoses for uh, almost all military veterans at that point who would return home from combat and, you know, have difficulties adjusting back to civilian life. They were shell-shocked. Um, I don't exactly know when the term PTSD started being used, but I do know that there is some discord uh, between the mental health field and the veteran field over the use of the word PTSD, or, or there used to be discourse about it, if it's no longer, uh, uh, um, if it's no longer a topic of conflict, um, and the discourse used to be about that people who were not veterans, people who did not have the diagnoses of being shell shocked, people who did not live through those horrors could not accurately claim that they had PTSD. Um, or I've, I've seen that used as an argument from some people on the veteran side is that, you know, civilians don't know what real PTSD is. Um, and, and while I agree that military PTSD is probably a whole different animal than, than what it may look like on the civilian side, I would wager that, you know, if, uh, you know, if a military vet did see horrible things and then came home and had similar experiences or an even worse experience, heaven forbid, 
they they might have a different uh, perspective. And similarly, if a civilian is saying, you know, you know, if because there are veterans who come back and they're not shell shocked, um, and some people find that hard to believe. And so, you know, again, if you were a civilian and you're experiencing whatever your version of PTSD is, um, you you can't tell anyone else that they don't know what it is because it is so individualized. Um, and if you would like to know, you know, how does somebody go uh, into the military and come out seemingly mentally unscathed, you can volunteer to go find out, right? Because the military um, is a voluntary thing, um, with the exception of the draft, which, albeit is no longer used, like actively used, um, I believe in most places, or majority of places, um, it's still used uh, indirectly, so men still kind of have to go and sign up, but they're not actively using the draft for for anything. Um, I don't know if women are now included in that. Um, I, I think it's still majority men, um, but obviously with, you know, progressive moves, uh, women are voluntarily able to sign up for the military if they so choose, which is a wonderful thing because women can protect our country just as well, if not better in some cases, than men. Um, and if people, if more people want to protect our country, why should we stop them from doing that? Okay, so you guys should ha- should have had enough time now where you've gotten all your coping stuff ready. If you needed, you know, a special water bottle, if you needed your hot tea, whatever you needed to do to feel as calm as possible for this episode, you should have been able to get all of that done by now. So we are going to just jump right in here. Um... And I'm just going to kind of breeze over the different trauma-related disorders in the DSM-5. I'm not going to actually talk about the criteria for this one because this is probably one of many diagnoses where I feel like the criteria is somewhat limiting. Um, And so, and what I mean by that is there's a lot of people that would not fit the criteria to be diagnosed with clinical PTSD, but their situation, their experience is debilitating for them. Um, It just may not be debilitating on, on what this manual has determined is the clinical level of debilitating. Um, So there are, there are some limitations to these disorders as well and the criteria which I explained in earlier episodes that the DSM-5 is just a tool it's not a be-all end-all diagnostic diagnostic thing to use Um, to all my mental health professionals out there if you are only using the DSM-5 to diagnose clients please seek supervision Um, so yes so the trauma related disorders are reactive attachment disorder, which is usually diagnosed in children. Um, In my experience in the field so far, I've usually mostly seen this dose, mostly seen this diagnosis with children in foster care um, or children who have been adopted. 
Um, the next one is disinhibited social engagement disorder. I actually, I haven't seen this one much. Um, I don't even think I've honestly seen it at all on any uh, treatment plans or, or, or documents or anything that I've come across. That's not to say that it's not prevalent somewhere, but I haven't seen it much, so I don't know that much about it. Um, then there is the, you know, ever fateful uh, clinical PTSD diagnoses, which also includes PTSD disorder for children six and under. Um, now, there are different criteria for children, um, slightly different criteria for children because it presents a little bit differently. Um, and then this has specifiers of with dissociative symptoms um, and with delayed expression. I don't exactly know what delayed expression means unless it's like, unless they mean uh, if it's like a delayed reaction type of thing. So like if the event happened like three years ago, but they're just now showing consistent symptoms of PTSD or something like that. Um, dissociative symptoms are symptoms where people kind of check out um, and that's not the same thing as daydreaming and it's not the same thing as purposely choosing to uh, not pay attention dissociating <coughs> excuse me dissociating is something that is very um, unconscious for some people and it kind of just it's like a switch flips um, unknowingly and they're kind of there one minute and they're gone the next um, so, yes. And then the last, well, not the last one, but, uh, the next one down is acute stress disorder, which, again, limitations, right? So a lot of people who don't fit the clinical PTSD diagnosis criteria would probably fit into that acute stress disorder, uh, category, um, but even more so <laughs> with the overlap. Uh, if you've ever heard somebody uh, be diagnosed with an adjustment disorder, technically that is a trauma and or stressor related disorder, and it has different little specifiers. So you can have adjustment disorder with depressed mood being like the primary the primary like presenting factor. You can have adjustment disorder with anxiety being the primary presenting factor. You can have adjustment disorder with mixed anxiety and depressed mood. You can have adjustment disorder with disturbance of conduct, which basically just means behavioral issues, and adjustment disorder with mixed disturbance of emotions and conduct. So this would be like a combination of all three. So you have anxiety, depression, your behavior's off the wall um, all at the same time. Then you have adjustment disorder that's unspecified, so that one would more so be like there's a clear, something has changed for you in your life, there has been a, a life-changing thing, um, but it is unspecified whether, like, it's unspecified what the source is or what the, uh, kind of what the outcome of that is. So maybe you don't feel exactly depressed, you don't feel exactly anxious, your behavior is not really off the wall, but maybe not off the wall, but your, your behavior is not really any different, but you know something's off. Um, and then, of course, they have the, you know, always loyal other specified trauma or stressor-related disorder or unspecified altogether trauma and related disorder. So those are the ones for that. Now, I want to 
talk about some risk factors here as far as like, you know, how do you know that you are at risk for trauma or how do you protect against trauma? Um, and one of the studies that we learned about in grad school was the ACEs study. It was very informative. It's basically a study that looks at your childhood. I believe it's from birth to age 17 or, or maybe it is up to 18. Um, it's, it's definitely 18 and below. I know that. It looks at experiences from 18 and younger. And there are, I believe, 10 questions on it. And you answer the questions of, you know, yes or no, I believe, um, if you had these things happen to you from 18 or younger. And based on your score, that determines how adverse of a childhood you had. And depending on your score, you can see like what your risk factors are. Now, they're not necessarily risk factors for particular traumas, but they're risk factors for different outcomes in your life. I think they're primarily based around some health outcomes, um, maybe some regional things as well. And coincidentally, that's how the study came about. Um, so the original study didn't have to do with trauma at all. I believe uh, the original study was in California, if I'm not mistaken, and a doctor was studying, I believe, like weight loss. Um, and so there was a there was a trial of some sort and he had a group of people who had lost weight and um, he was doing follow-ups with these people and to see whether or not they kept the weight off. And some people did and some people didn't. And so he started looking at why some people kept the weight off, were able to, and why other people weren't. And so he started compiling this list of different factors that kind of helped him to kind of develop the, the kind of ACE measure of how you can determine what someone's risk factors are. And I think that the benefit of this study is that in knowing your risk factors, you can also appropriately create protective factors to kind of uh, create that resiliency. And, and have resiliency be the, the bridge. And so um, I will have the link. There's a TED Talk about it. I will have a link. Um, I love TED Talks, by the way. If, if, if I've never mentioned that before on here, I live for TED Talks. Um, if there's not a TED Talk about it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so I will have the link to the TED Talk up on the website. Um, I'll see if I can maybe post a clip of it on the Instagram as well if people would be interested in actually just watching uh, part of that video. And I'm sure Ted, I'm sure the Ted organization has the video on their Instagram. So if I can link to that on my Instagram for the podcast, I will do that. Um, okay, so that's the ACEs study. Um, I will also have a link on the website for you to take the ACEs assessment for yourself and you can find out what your ACE score is. Um, I don't remember all the score designations offhand, but I do know that most people have a score of four or above. I don't remember what the, I think the highest score is 10 because there's 10 questions. I think the highest score is 10. And 
most people have a score of four or above. I've never met anyone that's had a score lower than four except for one person. One person out of my almost 30 years of living on this earth and I've only met one that has had a score of zero. So, and it is it is interesting to point out that again, the study only focuses on adverse childhood experiences. So, the even that person who has the score of zero could have had traumatic things or adverse things happen to them after age eighteen. Um, but the assessment doesn't look at that. The assessment looks at eighteen and younger. So, that's something to keep in mind as well. Now. There's like this new, I don't want to say it's a phenomenon, but there's this new term, and it's not even a new term, it's, it's just like a, a more in-depth term that people have been using recently, um, and they're, I don't know if they're, they've actually created a new diagnosis out of it, or if people are saying they want to create a new diagnosis out of it, but uh, the, the term is called complex PTSD, and from the things that I've read about it and the stuff that I've seen, complex PTSD seems to be a term that describes really adverse childhood experiences. So things like childhood abuse, childhood neglect, that sort of thing. And while I understand why people like the term, I don't. Um, I, I understand how people can feel validated by it and whatnot, but I don't like the term. And I don't like the term because all PTSD is complex. All trauma is complex. I feel like sectioning out a, a grouping of experiences to say, oh, this is complex PTSD is kind of invalidating everyone else who does still have traumatic experiences. Um, or have, has had those traumatic experiences and it's invalidating to them because it's, oh, yours isn't complex. It's, it's, it's almost like this is complex and yours is simple. No trauma is simple. Um, it's all complex. But people use it how they use it, I guess. Um, and I'm just one person and that's just my personal opinion from a professional standpoint. Uh, as far as language goes, I don't like the language of saying complex PTSD because all PTSD is complex. Um, but that's just me and my language thing. I, I am an English major by trade, and so language is very important to me. And when you're talking about trauma, language is like the most important. And so for the field to have kind of just created this term without really thinking language-wise, what it would actually, the connotations it may have is just a little nerve-wracking. And the field's not perfect, I know that. Um, you know, but I digress. So that's my little shtick on complex PTSD. Um, moving into treatment options. So because trauma is so individualized and so kind of specialized in its own right, uh, there are specialized treatments for trauma. So obviously there's all the basic ones of therapy, meds, 
holistic options uh, or combination, right? But some specialized options are EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing um, treatment. And basically what it is, is um, it's, it's kind of like training your brain to recognize that your trauma memories are memories, that they're not still playing out, that they're not still happening to you. Um, and basically what EMDR does is it allows the person to access uh, their trauma memories directly and, and kind of process them uh, from within. Normal therapy is kind of processing trauma on the outside. Um, you don't really dig too much into uh, the trauma memory itself. You kind of like, you try to work with all the stuff around it. Um, and that's not to say that you don't talk about the details of the, of the memory in regular therapy, but you don't necessarily go directly to that place all the time, if that makes any sense. Uh, with EMDR, you kind of do a little bit more uh, in-depth type things with the trauma memories. Uh, it's a very great, it's a very great uh, certification to have if you're interested in trauma. Um, I personally am not interested in that, um, in getting certified in that. Um, I don't know that I would be able to, just knowing me personally, I don't, I don't think I would be able to hold the same capacity of space being in depth with someone's memory like that, um, especially with children. I, I, I have a hard enough time working in regular therapy uh, models with children who have experienced trauma. Um, I definitely don't think I could do that with EMDR, knowing that I would have to go deeper into those sorts of things. Um, and another option for treatment with trauma is body work. Now, this is something new for me. Um, I learned about body work a while ago when I was kind of looking up options for my own trauma treatment. And body work seems to kind of be this overall term for anything that deals with the body. So it could be acupuncture, it could be yoga, it could be dance, um, it could be tapping. Um, anything involving the body itself seems to be categorically body work. Um, and I didn't realize that body work for me was kind of always something I did indirectly. Um, and I, I never knew that I was doing it and I never knew that it had the effect that it had until I stopped doing it. Um, so I used to be a dancer uh, well, I'm still a dancer, but I used to dance uh, at a studio from the time I was three until I was 16. And then I danced in college uh, during undergrad, um, and I even taught uh, my junior and senior years. I taught some classes. 
and I never realized how much dancing gave me control over my body or gave me that sense of safety within my own body, like knowing how it moves, how it can move, um, being able to kind of make it do what I want, when I want it to do it, how I want it to do it, and and that that trust within myself to know that I can tell my body to do something and it's going to do it. Um, or I can tell my body not to do something and it's not going to do it. Um, and, and kind of building that trust with myself on an inner level, um, but also from a physiological standpoint of, you know, if I, if I want to bend my knee, my knee's going to bend. Um, and, and being able to trust that my body is going to do what feels right, but it's also going to try its best to do what I want it to do. Um, which is to say that if you're trying to regular trauma therapy um, and even specialized trauma therapy begins with a safety and stabilization module, which means that you teach your client or you teach yourself how to relax. Um, and that is the bulk of trauma therapy. Honestly, you, you teach yourself how to just relax because a lot of times with trauma, we are in like a, almost like an anxiety state where we're so worried that something is going to happen that was as bad as our traumatic experience or that was as bad as whatever the big bad was. Um, and and we're, we're constantly on edge. We're in fear that, oh my gosh, this this something terrible is going to happen again. And so the main component of trauma therapy is teaching yourself how to relax. And once you do that, you start to open up doors of other avenues to logically process what's going on around you. And so uh, there is a brain model that shows someone what's happening um, when they are triggered with their fight flight, freeze, or fawn response, and you're, when, you're, when you have trauma, your brain chemistry changes, um, and so your amygdala, which is your, your kind of safety sense um, in your brain, it doesn't work the same way after you've had a traumatic experience. And so a lot of trauma treatment is working on kind of reprogramming that part of your brain, uh, which you do through relaxation techniques and, and various other treatment models. So we are almost at 30 minutes here. So I'm actually going to give us all a break because again, this is a very heavy topic for some people. So I'm going to let you guys take a quick break and we will be right back. Alrighty, I hope you guys enjoyed that short word from our sponsor. Now back to our regular scheduled programming. So I have this idea for a, I guess you would call it a treatment model for trauma. Um, essentially it would be a research project, honestly, just to kind of see 
what the effects of dance um, and that sort of body work would have on trauma. Um, I know that there is a dance therapy specialty where uh, body movement is utilized. Um, I don't know that it's specifically utilized for trauma um, in that it, like in that setting. Um, but I'm very interested to see what correlations would come out of that um, because there is a lot of trust and uh, control and different things that kind of go into trauma and how trauma affects someone. Um, there are a lot of those elements within dance. And so I have a, you know, I have a personal, I guess, uh, it's a personal slash professional development goal uh, to maybe one day get this, uh, the, this trauma treatment trial group thing off the ground. Um, I have to, like, I keep saying I'm going to sit down and, like, write a, like, full legit proposal for it um I'm just kind of dragging my feet with it because with research projects you tend to have to find funding and all these other things um and funding is not always easy to find sometimes if you don't kind of already work or have connections in a setting where People are just kind of throwing money at people to do research for things. Um, but it is definitely a goal that I have for the future. You know, it's definitely not to say that I've given up on it. I haven't. Um, it's definitely something that I'm always kind of looking for ways to find more information about it where I can. So if anybody knows um, of any research opportunities where I could possibly play that out or if somebody <laughs> wants to fund a research project, um, within the therapy field that incorporates dance, feel free to hit me up or, you know, send my information to whoever your connects are if you, if you want to help in that endeavor. Um, now this last little bit here is going to be for all of my allies. So if you are a person who maybe you aren't going through anything traumatic or you don't have uh, any type of trauma history, but you are uh, related to, in a relationship with, friends with, co-workers with, what have you, whatever your relationship or interaction level may be with someone who does have a trauma history or is going through something traumatic right now and you want to, you know, know how to best support them, I'm going to be talking to you for the second half of this episode. So I came up with a little kind of like uh, mnemonic to kind of, you know, help you to conceptualize what it is your job is. Um, and again, because trauma is so very individualized for some people, um, it's very hard to know what to say. It's very hard to know what to do um, unless you're trained to deal with trauma on like a wide scale but there are things that you can do as family members as friends as co-workers spouses partners significant others what have you 
there are some basic things that you can do for people when maybe they're having an uh, maybe they're having flashbacks or they're having you know they're just having that negative thought cycle about their trauma or anything like that this is kind of just like a basic quick little kind of like check-in um, that allies can do for themselves when they are trying to support their loved ones. So the mnemonic device is uh, you the, the way to be a good ally is to HDMI. Um, and if you know what an HDMI uh, port or cord is, usually it is a cord that allows you to connect um, a well, connect two devices. They don't necessarily have to be um, a small device to a big device. Um, it just connects two devices. So for example, my computer is a two-in-one tablet computer. Um, so it's kind of a little itty-bitty thing. And because the age of DVD players is long gone, <laughs> when I wanted to watch movies, um, I would have to put the movie in my CD drive on my computer and then HDMI my computer screen to my TV um, if I wanted to see it on a bigger screen. And so the way to think about that is when you are trying to support your loved one who has a trauma history, what you are doing for them is you are bridging the gap for them to possibly be able to see not necessarily a bigger picture, but you're enabling them to see the picture in a wider frame. You're giving them a different perspective. Um, and so this this mnemonic that I came up with to HDMI for, for an ally is, so H is you hold space, um, which basically means you just listen. You're not responding, you're not reacting, just listening whether they're venting or they just want to like they just want you to be a soundboard you listen that is your number one responsibility is to just hear what they're saying and know that they're trusting you to keep whatever they're sharing in confidence and that they are allowing you to see a very high level of vulnerability um, and you do not want to take that for granted and you definitely want to validate that and reassure them that your only job is to listen it's not to judge it's not to tell them how they should be healing because you shouldn't be doing that um, and it's not to tell them you know when to heal or, or what method is going to be right for them because that choice is not up to you. That choice is up to the individual person. So the H is for holding space, which is just a fancy way of saying just listening to them and letting them know that whatever feelings they have are safe in that space and that you're going to be there no matter how dark and scary it gets, you're going to continue to listen. D is for delegating. And so when it comes to the point, you're listening, you're listening, you're listening, and you're like, okay, I've got this. I, I'm hearing what they're saying. I understand they've been through a hard time. They've had hard experiences. I'm good. And then they get to a piece of their story, possibly, where you're just like, uh-oh, I'm not good. 
I think this goes beyond me. I don't think I can help them with this. This is where you delegate. So you, you know, you refer them to their therapist or you refer them to their doctor or you, you give them the crisis hotline number or the crisis text line number. Um, you, you know, you refer them to support groups or, you know, and if they don't, if they don't already have these things in place, you guys can go to Google together and you can type in, you know, all these various terms, support groups near, enter your location. You can type in therapist near, enter your location. You can type in, uh, enter your country, national crisis hotline or national crisis text line, uh, whatever it is they may need, um, you guys can do that together, but you're delegating it to someone who is more trained and more adequately prepared to deal with some of those uh, deeper and darker things that someone may have going on. M is for mindful, and this is really just a, a tip for allies to be mindful that the trauma healing that the person is going to be doing is a personal journey. It has nothing to do with you. Um, and so whatever they're learning, whether it be in therapy, on their own, however they're learning it, please don't take any of that personally. Um, don't internalize whatever's happening for them and make it about you because it's not going to be helpful. You can be supportive and you can, you can express that their healing journey may be causing some changes in your relationship, that's perfectly okay to talk about, but talk about it from a place of openness. Um, don't try to make it about you. Um, you know, you don't want to be the person who says, well, this wasn't a problem before you started going to therapy, or, you know, since you've been, you know, doing all this self-healing, you know, you've, you've changed. Um, Yes, that's kind of the whole point. Um, when someone is healing from something, the hope is that they're not going to be the same person that they were at the beginning. Otherwise, why would they be why would they be doing all of this if they were just going to be the same person that they were at the beginning? Um, change doesn't work that way. When you, especially when you're trying to kind of rise above something or overcome something, Clearly, you don't want to be the same person you were at the beginning um, because there was already an identified problem at the beginning. And so if you come out of your healing or your journey and you still have the same problem, then what was helpful during that process? You know, how is that process helpful? And so the process of healing is a process of change, which, which oftentimes means that the person you see in the beginning is not going to be the person you see at the end and allies please be mindful that someone's personal healing journey is about them it's not about you um, and, and I say that full of love I, I really do I say that full of love because it can be hard to watch a person that you care about become someone different because maybe when you met them you know they were that person that still had all of their trauma 
that they were carrying around and and that's the person that you came to know and while you want that person to get better and you want that person to to not have to carry around all those different things right the cost of that may be that your relationship changes in some way and and it may it, it could also mean that you no longer have a relationship with that person for whatever reason and that's okay it it may hurt and it may it, it may feel you know it may feel at that point, allies, that you're having a traumatic experience because you've now lost someone or something that you held dear. And and if it is, if that if that does become traumatic for you, you can also seek help for that. You know, just because you 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 know you developed a trauma does not make it any less valid than someone who already had a trauma history. Um, you know, from day one or, or anything. All trauma is valid. And anytime, you know, any of you feel like you need to reach out for help, please do so. Um, so that's the M. And I is for insight. And so learn with them. If you want to be that hands-on ally, learn with them. You know, learn their coping skills. Do the coping skills with them. Do the coping skills for yourself. You know, try them out. See if they work for you. Um, you know, do your own self-reflection, you know, alongside them. Um, obviously, from an individual perspective, like, they do their own work, you do your own work. But if you want to talk about it with them, if you want to share your own insights about yourself that could be good too because again like I said I, I, the healing journey itself is transformative and so if if one person is doing all the changing and the other person isn't it can start to feel very one-sided and, and it can start to feel like it's isolating um, in a way because one person is having all of this you know revelation and all these epiphanies and they're having all of these self-discoveries about themselves and the other person isn't because they're not going through any sort of transformation or healing journey um, and that's not to say that you need to be you know in competition or that you need to be doing a, a transformation just because your loved one is but I think that it is always best practice for everyone to do self-reflection um, consistently and to just kind of check in with themselves from time to time about the things that they're carrying around. You know, we, we all carry around so many things and I, and I doubt that any of us ever really take the time to check and see what the things we're carrying are. Are they even ours? Some of us are carrying around stuff that does not belong to us and we should have put it down a long time ago. We should have put it down a long time ago and we just haven't because we don't check in with ourselves we don't make sure that the stuff that we have is our stuff and so i would suggest that everyone check in with themselves about their stuff if you've got baggage or luggage or containers or whatever you're carrying and it ain't yours put it down it don't belong to you let it go um if you do have stuff that is yours and it's heavy unpack it see what's in there why is it so heavy and you know and again you can do this work by yourself you can do it 
with a trained therapist. I would suggest you do it with a trained therapist, but I get it. It's not as it's not accessible for everybody. Um, but I would definitely say find one person that you can kind of always go to for that sounding board. Um, if you if you can't afford a therapist, um, maybe definitely seek out a mentor or someone you trust to just kind of run those things by every now and again, um, just to make sure that you do have support when you're doing that. If you can't find a particular individual to do that with, there are definitely support groups out there for all different types of circumstances. And you can find one that suits your needs and, and you can establish a community there. Um, yeah, so that is my little mnemonic. Uh, being a good ally requires you to HDMI. thought that was pretty cool of me to kind of connect it that way. Um, if you don't like it and you hate it, sorry. That's what I came up with. Come up with your own, you know, comment them um, on the Instagram, comment them on the website, comment them on the Twitter. Um, yeah, we have, we have a Twitter for the podcast. Still don't know why, but we have one. So follow us there, comment on there, you know, interact with us any ways that you feel led and yeah, let me know what you think about that. Um, and if you, you know, if you take this information and you talk to, you know, your person, uh, that may be going through some type of trauma or maybe trying to, uh, go through their healing journey right now and this was helpful for you, definitely tell me about that too. Um, I, I want to hear these success stories. If, if these episodes are helping anybody, um, I want to hear about it. So please let me know. Um, if you're having these conversations outside of the episodes and, and what they look like and, you know, if they're helping or not. Um, yeah, so that was pretty much, um, what I wanted to say to, to the allies. And again, uh, if you need to pause at this point and do some coping skills and kind of take care of yourself, please do that. Um, I only have like a little bit more uh plugging to do for the social medias um so you can kind of opt out of this part if you need to go and take care of yourself um so as stated in the last episode the podcast does have a patreon now patreon and there are three tiers currently the lowest tier is one dollar people one dollar so if you would like to support the podcast please go sign up for that the link is in the link tree the link is on the website it's on the instagram i believe um i think the instagram just may have the link to the link tree but either way it's on there you can find it um it's just welcome to the q podcast uh like it is almost everywhere else so Please, please, please go support the podcast on Patreon, and the first 10 patrons are going to receive a exclusive logo sticker by Kelsified Crafts on Instagram, so you can go check her out. I will have her link in everything as well as promotion, so you definitely don't want to miss out on getting a exclusive sticker. It's kind of like my brief bridge segue trial test run thing of like merch 
so I'm thinking of doing merch and I fully underwear <laughs> underwear I fully understand and am aware that I do not have a large audience um I know that so it's it's I know it sounds like I'm doing like large audience things and I probably have like 10 people that faithfully listen and you know what if those 10 people sign up for the patreon they get the stickers so still you know the merch would be worth it um and and even if it isn't i get to have merch like who doesn't want their own merch so and you know if i wear it out people will be like oh hey you have a podcast that's cool do you have more shirts and i could be like uh not right now but if you want one i can make them so you know supply and demand people um but yes please go check out the patreon and subscribe if you do not want to have any benefits of the patreon but you still want to give a monetary donation there is a custom option on the patreon for you to just give whatever your specified amount is um, I also have listener support enabled on the Anchor page, so you can support from there as well. In addition to leaving me voice messages on the Anchor page as well, if you want to add a comment about an episode or something, um, please feel free to do so that way. And, you know, I can add your comment into the episode and you can kind of be somewhat famous, kind of, sort of. Probably not, because, you know, again, I don't have a large audience. But, <laughs> but you know, I like this podcast, and I hope that you guys like it, too. Like, it did just start as a way for me to have something to do on the weekends, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it, and I definitely think that it is going to be something that I continue with. Um, so, yeah, interact with me. Let me know how you feel. Um, if you hate the tiers on the Patreon, if you feel like the Patreon is going to go nowhere, let me know that. Like, I'm open to all feedback, criticisms, comments, opinions, questions. So, that is all I had for you guys for this episode. Again, if you need to use your coping skills, please go do that at this time or press pause and go do it, uh, right now. And I thank you guys for listening and... You know, it is just, it's good. It's good to be able to talk this out sometimes um, and just kind of like share my thoughts because I don't often get to do that. Um, Oftentimes at work, I'm the one, you know, being the professional and, and I have to sometimes not necessarily have the right answer all the time, but I need to have a answer sometimes. And it's nice to just come here and just to be able to kind of talk about thoughts and kind of let my thoughts roam around a little bit and I have a little bit more time to kind of think about things and kind of structure it um, the way that I need to in my head to really kind of conceptualize it in a different kind of way. Um, and this way is more laid back. I don't I don't have to be so, uh, so reined in here. I can kind of be a little bit more uh, freer with my language, um, my colloquialisms. So, <laughs> do you know what's so funny? I'm sorry, I just had a random thought. Colloquialism is a word that describes, like, not necessarily slang language, but it's, like, laid-back language, like, informal language, 
but the word colloquialism itself is kind of like this fancy word <laughs> like I'm sorry I just found that funny like when I said it and I heard how it sounded I was like wow that's such a that's such a contradiction but anyways we are at the end of the episode and I'm gonna go because like now my thoughts are just you know running um but again thank you guys for listening and I will catch you guys next week disclaimer while I am a licensed mental health professional none of my suggestions on this episode or any episode of this season are substitutes for actual ongoing care with a mental health team that knows the specifics of your symptoms and your case directly Speak with your family doctor to get referrals if needed for any psych evals or if you are thinking about medication. If you have a therapist already, speak with them as well if you feel any of the disorders discussed should be getting addressed as part of your treatment plan if it is not already. You can also check out our website for more mental health resources.